Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, host of the Remnant podcast, and dispatch media. over 500 miles to Chautauqua, New York, uh, on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday I drove 500 miles back, and um. The drive out, totally worth it. Um, uh, for whatever reason, I'm still a little confused about this. Google Maps did not want me taking um, too many interstates, and I didn't second guess that. And so I ended up going the scenic route. I mean, not probably added maybe 45 minutes, an hour to the total drive time. I'm not even sure about that. It may have just been trying to avoid some traffic stuff, but um, one of the prettiest drives I've ever done, definitely one of the prettiest drives on the East Coast I've ever done, took me through a um, big chunk of New Hampshire and Vermont, and then um, um, just basically the entire width of New York State, and um, it was funny. So like I, about 200 miles into this drive, I tweeted that, um, I had, a um, what is it, Pippa? Why are you crying? <sighs> Hold on, everybody. Mm-hmm. Hey, you guys can stay outside. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know if that'll get edited out or not. Um, but I let the dogs out. Woof, woof. Um, what was I saying? I said, I went, um, 200 miles into, a the drive and I pulled over to get something to eat. I actually had my first Big Mac in probably 15 years. And, um, I tweeted that I was, you know, it was one of the prettiest places, one of the prettiest drives I had done in the U S and I've done a lot of drives, certainly on the East coast. And then, um, uh, I drive into or through Troy, New York, apparently the birthplace of uncle Sam, um, which they're proud to tell you on, graying moldering signs all over the place and i'll tell you if the if the if the town elders of troy new york really really work hard and inspire to improve themselves uh they might in 2023 uh go up a full grade to craptacular because uh man that place looked run down and um but then you know like 15 minutes out 20 minutes out of troy it's back to bucolic beautiful uh, scenery anyway chautauqua uh i wrote this whole g file that i'm not going to run i don't think but i'll talk about it here um all right i shouldn't say a whole g file most of a g file chautauqua was is this it's it's this amazing 
place. And I had heard of the Chautauqua movement because I do that, you know, I know some of that sort of social gospel and progressive intellectual history, American history stuff. Um, but I really didn't have any conception of what the Chautauqua institution was. And I, you know, I usually, I, I very rarely talk about places I have speaking gigs, even though if there are people who would like to pay me to come give a speech, I'm all, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to entertain it. Um, but, uh, I just don't let the streams cross too often. And I haven't done a lot of speaking gigs, you know, basically since COVID and, you know, they were already dying down because of the, um, you know, my, my, my position on Trump, I, you know, lost a lot of speaking gigs doing all that. Um, and, um, so it was fun to, I was glad to take the thing and I decided to drive because I just keep hearing all of these terrible stories about, um, I, not only hearing, having these terrible experiences, um, with, uh, air travel, canceled flights, missed connections, all these kinds of things. And I just didn't want the aggravation, um, getting to Chautauqua where you have to fly to Buffalo and then still drive for like an hour, hour and a half. And, um, so I, that's why I decided to drive, catch up on some podcasts, on some audio tapes, that kind of thing. Anyway, where was I? Oh, so like Chautauqua, the Chautauqua institution itself. It's weird, man. It's weird in a great way. It's like, um, how to put this? It's a resort, right? It's kind of like, it's this like lake resort community. About 10,000 people live there in the summer. You have all sorts of interesting, weird architecture spanning a bunch of different American, classic American styles, um, where these houses are both like individual family houses and also like rooming houses in a sort of San Francisco-y kind of feel to them, um, are all cheek by jowl alongside these, some of these really beautiful, um, wood, you know, there's a giant, the Chautauqua hotel, there's these various places. I can't really do it justice. You might want to Google around about it. You know, you can go to the Chautauqua Institution's website. So anyway, it's a resort or a resort community or a, or a vacation, summer vacation community with a lake and a summer camp and a this and a that. But it's also like uh, an intellectual retreat and an arts festival and um, not quite a think tank, but more like a, um, I, I don't even know how to put it. They, they, they put on programs and, and all sorts of events and recitals and concerts. And the Chautauqua movement, I believe, sort of gave birth to the Sunday school movement in the United States. And um, it was originally a very religious place. And, um, um, and it has this long, rich tradition with various, I think, originally Baptist, but, you know, various um, Protestant denominations. But now it's very um, uh, ecumenical and, and I don't know if ecumenical is the right word. Um, it's, uh, it's got a whole diversity of different houses. Like I saw, uh, my AI colleague, Norm Ornstein there, and he was staying at the Jewish house and he's been going there for 30 years. And anyway, it was, it was a really interesting place. And the reason I bring it up, well, a couple of reasons. So you might've heard that this was the place where Sam, Salman Rushdie was attacked and nearly murdered um, a little over a week ago. And um, um, he was there to give a 
a talk as part of this lecture series, this education lecture series that um, I was part of. And, um, and it was, it was kind of surreal, like for, for Chautauqua, where there's this really intense emphasis on the free exchange of ideas and good faith debate and inquiry and all this kind of thing. It was, it was essentially sacrilegious to attack Salman Rushdie, um, or any speaker like that there. And I think a lot of people, some of the people, certainly the people I talked to about it, you know, were, were deeply traumatized. It was, it was a, it was a fundamental violation of what the place is about. And, uh, I'll return to that in a second, but, um, so I get there very late, right? Cause I, it was about a 10 hour drive all in. And, um, I met by, you know, one of the, like the vice president, one of the vice presidents for the Chautauqua institution or something and very nice guy. And he brings me to the guest house, which is like a little mini hotel and it's really charming. And I'm still sort of like figuring out where the hell I am uh, and what the hell I'm doing. And I'm kind of uh, hypnotized by the drive, partly because it was so pretty, partly because I was driving this for ridiculous reasons, this rented um, giant pickup truck. And um, anyway, so like I'm just sort of getting my bearings and everyone is sort of uh, running around helping me out and do you need this? Do you need that? What can I get you something to eat? This was so late. And which is all very sweet and very welcoming. And one guy comes up to me and he's like, um, turned out to be a very charming guy. But at first I was just a little too frazzled to, to, to process what he was saying to me. But it turns out he had, he was friends with Terry Teachout and they wrote like four operas together. And anyway, it was just kind of overwhelming. And, I go into my room, um, um, I have a drink, I go to sleep. And then in the morning, I walk around, I take a look at the place, I really get to soak the place in and how pretty it is. And I talk to some more people in the lobby and, and whatever. And, and then I'm getting ready to go do my talk. And there's, because the, the place has got this bed and breakfasty guest house kind of quaint vibe thing and it's where they put up speakers makes sense every room in this guest house has a little journal um for you to sort of sign um and um say a few words in particular to the lady the hostess of this little guest house and so I, normally i don't like to sign guest books it's just i always feel weird and um never know what exactly to say and but i figure you know, this is kind of a historic place. It's a century old, you know, they are going here so nice. So I, all right, all right. So I open it up and I go to the first blank page, which is about a third or halfway in. And I look and it turns out that the last person to stay in that room was Salman Rushdie. And, uh, he wrote a very nice note. I'm not going to violate any privacy or any of that kind of stuff. Um, and, um, and it was just sort of wild, you know, that this might be the last, you know, heaven forbid, if he, did, if he, if he hadn't survived, there could have been like the last autograph he had ever signed or the last document he ever, note he had ever written. And, um, and I did tell the, the, the management people about it, it was like, you know, you might want to not just leave this 
out for people to have or see or take whatever. Um, but it was really just incredibly sobering and, and, and strange. And I, I didn't even, you know, I actually filled out my little note in the book before realizing who had written the other. Anyway, it was just all very strange, but the reason why I'm yammering on about this is in part because I really love doing the thing, but in part during the actual talk, there were about, you know, 500 people, I think mostly left of center, certainly not wildly pro-Trump people. It's uh, that kind of crowd. I'd done my whole riff on, which should be familiar to listeners here, about gratitude and how I thought that one of the main problems we have in our society is that we don't teach gratitude anymore. We teach the opposite of, grat of gratitude. You know, we teach notions of resentment and entitlement. Um, you know, gratitude makes you feel indebted to the world for, or society or your community for the things it has bequeathed to you so generously, the things you inherited that you did not work for, um, but that you benefit from. It opens your heart, right? And we teach people that they have, a, you know, from a very early age, they have reason to be pissed off or aggrieved or to feel entitled um, because of things that weren't done to them, but were done to the people who came before them, you know, or that because of their status or some other abstract notion, the world owes them something from the day they're born. And we have institutions that inculcate that in people. And I think one of the reasons we have the politics that we have is because we have turned our backs on, on gratitude. And again, you know, uh, as, as the, as a charter member of the Yuval Levin fan club, you know, I would, you know, I'm indebted to Yuval for making the point a while, a long time ago, but how in a really fundamental, almost metaphysical way, Conservatism is gratitude, right? Because what conservatism is, is this, or certainly a kind of conservatism, is uh, this orientation that says these things in my life, in my world, in my society are lovely and, and love-worthy, and I want to protect them and pass them on for posterity. And that's, in other words, I want to conserve them. And I had this whole, you know, the reason why I, I banged out this, this draft G file, which again, I don't think I'm going to run, um, was because I had such an amazing bout of Esprit d'Escalier, um, on the drive back. Um, if you don't know Esprit d'Escalier, um, it's a French, it's a fancy French word also much like crudité that, um, that literally translates as, I believe as the spirit of the stairs. And basically what the spirit of Scalier is, is that, oh man, I should have said this feeling, or I should have said that feeling. It's the feeling that George Costanza has when he's driving back from his job at the Yankees and it dawns on him that he should have said, you know, because the, uh, there's a, one of the guys at this meeting makes fun of Costanza for eating a giant bowl of shrimp, uh, or eating so much shrimp, um, of the free shrimp that he says, Hey, George, the ocean called, it's running out of shrimp. And, uh, and George realizes on the drive home 
that he should have come back with, oh yeah, the jerk store called and they're running out of you or something like that, right? And it's that feeling of, oh, that's what I should have said. And, I, you know, given my, given the weird career that I've chosen, I live with the Spirit Escalier all the time, you know, because I do TV and radio and podcasts and whatever. But um, this kind of hit me harder than most because I think metaphorically, there's a really important point to make about Chautauqua, which again, I really, I was just very, very impressed with. And I was trying to explain it to my wife. Um, and I was like, you know, it's got a little bit of Bohemian Grove, which I've been to once. And the thing about Bohemian Grove is that it's, uh, it's full of music and performances and, you know, theatrical types. And Chautauqua has got that sort of thing going on. Uh, it's also has got lots of conversations and lectures and things going on like that. And I was like, and it has a little bit like, and I tried to name some like resort places we've been that are kind of similar. And then I was like, and it also feels a little bit like um, Alexandria in The Walking Dead around season three or four. And for those of you who don't watch Walking Dead, there's this whole, one of the things I like about the direction that The Walking Dead went, even though it's, you know, people have given up, a lot of people have given up on the show, is that it sort of recreated the evolution of humanity from hunter-gatherer to uh, medieval city-states. And... Um, and Alexandria is like this walled community where inside it's still fairly civilized and normal like the before times. And there was a little bit of that kind of feeling to this Chautauqua place where it was kind of like, I don't know, I mean, sort of, I, I guess another analogy might be like those supposedly fake American towns that the Soviets built. Um, I know it became much more of a thing in in pop culture than I think it was in reality, but there was those stories about how there was like a fake American town where they were trained spies to live like Americans or whatever. It kind of had a little bit of that. I mean, it's a Brigadoon kind of thing. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt once said that Chautauqua is the most American place in America or something like that. Anyway, it had just this total out of sync with reality feeling. And, um, and what I'm trying to bring all this together to is, um, even though there are all these like, uh, you know, left of center people at this thing, I'm sure I know there were some right of center people too, because they came and talked to me after, but you know, I think it's a fairly progressive crowd. Um, what I wish I had sort of made the connection to was this notion when I was talking about gratitude in America, I wish I had connected it to Chautauqua because these people really care about this place, right? They talk about the spirit of Chautauqua and the mission of Chautauqua and the history of Chautauqua. And, uh, you know, when this thing was founded, it was mostly like tents and campsites and, you know, now it's houses and running water. And I am sure that forget every generation, I'm sure at every meeting, planning meeting, board meeting, community meeting at this place, people who outside of Chautauqua are probably pretty left wing, um, are pretty profoundly small C conservative about Chautauqua itself. You know, how much change can we accept while still preserving the spirit of this place? And, um, and I think this is something that I, I think conservatives could do a better job talking to liberals about is that's a big chunk of what conservatives mean about 
conservation, about conservatism, about conserving, about gratitude, is that there are things about America that we don't want to change, right? That we want to be permanent, permanent in principle. That doesn't mean, you know, that you can't have running water and you can't update technology and you can't, you know, refine the, the, the application of your principles in certain ways or, and all that. But that, you know, these people that you talk with, they've been doing you know, prayer meetings and book groups and these kinds of things for over a century. Um, I think the longest running book group in America is there. The women's temperance league was founded there. Um, and the place is a lot more diverse now and that's great. But everybody who lives there, at least the, from the people I've talked to and the people I've talked to about this place, um, regardless of whether they have a D or an R after their name, there's a fundamentally sort of gratitude-driven conservatism about the place itself, about maintaining certain traditions, maintaining certain attitudes. And it seems to me that this is a principle that should apply to all of America. Um, you know, more intensely in your local communities and your local institutions. I'm sure these kinds of small C conservative arguments happen all the time, even in progressive churches um, and synagogues and all those kinds of places, but also just in America in general. Like, um, you know, the tradition of free speech should be settled, right? It should not be up for debate. It's, it's, it just, that's the way we live is we live with free speech. Right, we live with the right to privacy. We really don't need to like relitigate these things. Um, and I think that you know, and I am not saying that people should just shut up and not argue with each other at all. Democracy is supposed to be about disagreement, right? I like big arguments. I like profound arguments, but certain arguments in America should be settled because this is America. This is just how we do things. And um, in the same way that, like, you know, Chautauqua is not going to have mosh pits or raves, um, um, or it's probably not going to have a lot of hip-hop concerts, uh, not because those things are necessarily wrong or bad. They just don't fit the spirit of the plays. There's certain things that, you know, just don't fit in America, and we should not be you know, spending a lot of time uh, navel-gazing and, um, and, and questioning it. It's, it's sort of like when you play a board game. Like, there's, one of the things that's most tedious and grating about, like, playing Monopoly is when people argue about what the rules are. I've got no problem arguing about what the rules are before you start playing. But, you know, so if you're going to do the free parking thing with the money in the middle, great. If you're not, not great. You know, whatever, whatever innovations or different ways of playing you want, agree to them beforehand and that's fine. But once you start playing Monopoly, you got to play by the rules of the game. And I, and I think being a conservative about the rules of the game, about free speech, about freedom of assembly, about your constitutional liberties, about taking people as you find them, about the principle of equal rights, the principles of colorblindness, all these kinds of things, there's absolutely no reason why being on the left should make you any less conservative about that kind of stuff than being on the right and vice versa. Frankly, there are a lot of left-wingers these days who I think are more conservative about some fundamental American notions than 
um, a lot of right-wingers are because there's just so much friggin' idiotic intellectual and ideological and psychological churn going on. Um, you know, I mean, the, 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 a lot of people on the left, at least in the context of our current political fights, are more conservative about the rule of law or the legitimacy of the FBI than, um, than a lot of people on the right are. And so I, I got no problem. Let's argue about like what kind of public policies we should have and all that kind of thing. But I just think that some questions, barring some like, earth-shattering insight or change in events should just be off the table um, because they're settled. It's the Calvin Coolidge thing about, you know, the, the propositions of the founding are um, final. Our rights come from God, not from government, that we're citizens, not subjects, that the fruits of our labors belong to us, um, that the government derives its legitimacy from the people. Um, you go down the list. These are not to be revisited. Um, and the only reason to revisit them is when somebody or some forces uh, call them into question. And then you, you got to rise up and defend them. This is sort of the point I was making with Russ Roberts the other day about how, you know, about the new ideas stuff is that, you know, the reason why I keep defending, you know, limited government and free market economics and all these kinds of things is because they're under threat. But if they weren't under threat, you know, I just, I would just rather people say this is the way it is. And which gets me back to, to the Salman Rushdie thing. Um, you know, the, that, that violence was such an affront to the people who love Chautauqua because it so violated the spirit of the place of sort of good faith, good natured, free exchange of ideas and debate and all that. And it just, and that's what sort of filled me with the esprit de scalier feeling, feeling is that that feeling of sacrilege and of outrage and of disgust should be universally American. That should be, that should be how we feel about anyone who tries to commit, never mind a foreign power, that tries to commit violence to punish people for disagreeing on ideas or on expression. It should just be that, that, that Chautauqua reaction should be an American reaction. And we shouldn't even, you know, play games or footsie with claims that are suggestions that, you know, oh, he shouldn't have said that, or um, he sort of invited the problem or any of that kind of stuff, because we're Americans. And in America, we simply reject the idea that um, speech is violence or that violence is speech, whether it comes from the left or the right or, or from Muslims or Jews or Hindus or whoever. And, and, and this kind of conservatism is really what I consider to be patriotism. It's loving your country for what it is. That's why I, mean, I know this is an old riff of mine, but that's why I always hated that line from Obama um, and a lot of other progressives about how we're going to fundamentally transform America. And then if you ever question whether they or not they actually love America, they get all outraged. You know, how dare you question my patriotism and all that? Well, well patriotism 
you know, we're not going to get deep in the weeds on all the definitions, but patriotism is at least in part simply love of your country. And to love something, you have to love it for what it is. Like go, you know, I always make this joke about, you know, like go tell your wife, um, Hey honey, I love you. I love you deeply. I just want to fundamentally transform you. Um, when we love people and places and things, meaningful things, we love them for what they are, not what they could be or what they might be if they were perfect. You know, we, we you know, patriotism comes from the um, same root as, as uh, from the ancient Greeks is father, right? You know, you know uh, patriarchal, patriarch, patriotism. And, you know, not everybody loves their fathers. Not everybody loves their parents. Um, but for the most part, those of us who love our parents, and I think that's most of us, um, it's not that we love them despite their faults. It's that their faults give texture to the uniqueness of our love for them. It's part of the story of them. And when we... When people talk about how, oh, yeah, I really love this country. I just want to change it entirely. They're missing the point of patriotism, that there are some things that we just should never want to change about this country in terms of like fundamental principles. And, in, in, you know, the, the spirit of America, like the spirit of Chautauqua, you can move on to, to running water, right? You can move on to air conditioning and all that kind of stuff. But something ineffable and sacred remains. And I think the same sort of way to think about gratitude for America, um, which, you know, patriotic gratitude is what are the things that are sort of the essence of America that we love and that we are not willing to be change agents about, that we are not willing to be progressive about because there's no progress to be made past, you know, again, notions of say free speech. That's it. It's over. Stop arguing about it because free speech is free speech. Now, obviously, I'm being sweeping here because, you know, like there's a difference between arguments about pre free speech and, say, pornography. But I think you get the point um, is that the we can we know it when we see it, when we're talking about the sort of fundamental things that we love about this country and that we should be grateful for. And I just think that part of the conversation just gets so thrown out. This is why I never like the way. You know, like make America great again is a old political cliche. Reagan used to say it all the time, but Reagan didn't mean it the way Trump did because the way Trump talks about make America great again, the way a lot of the MAGA people make talk about make America great again is it's entirely dependent upon which party and which personalities are running the federal government. And, um, that's not what makes America great. Um, you know, some leaders bring out the greatness or marshal the greatness or called the greatness um, in American history, and that's fine. But, you know, no one would say, you know, at Chautauqua or at a university that it's a good university under this dean or this president, um, but it's a bad one under this one. You can say that this, this official made things worse or better, but it's just not the way it works in real life. And this idea that in America, which has at its core 
this hot, this, this skepticism about government and the power of the state to say that it goes from being a good country or a bad country um, every four years, depending upon whether or not Republicans or Democrats are in office. And when the other team is in office, it, when the other team is in power, you know, we have to take America back, you know, take the country back. Um, it's garbage. This is not the captain of a ship. You know, the, the president of the United States isn't on a throne manifesting the Volksgemeinschaft of the nation. It's a, it's a glorified bureaucrat running some small aspect of, of, you know, a significant one of a much larger enterprise. And it's, you know, as I, I wrote the other day, you know, in that banana Republic G file, you know, there are, there are over a half million elected officials in this country. And, um, 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 and none of them are, um, our bosses. None of them are our fathers. None of them are our mothers. Um, and they don't reflect the richness and greatness of this country. They are there to help protect it and guide it in some limited ways. But this, you know, the make America great again thing is basically just a darker version of fundamentally transform America. It's the same, the same assumptions are at work in there. All right, I'm done with all that. I hope I wasn't boring you to tears with all of it. I just I didn't want to publish it, but I, I wanted to get some of that off my chest. Um, and um, anyway, there you are. Um, oh, one last thing. I mean, it's not about Chautauqua, but so the person who interviewed me for this discussion thing was um, um, uh, former editor of, of Time Magazine and um, and now is at the, uh, uh, at, at Harvard, uh, she's like the Edward R. Murrow chair of something or other, um, at Kennedy school. Very nice lady. We had, we had a, she was very gracious and, um, um, and generous person. Um, but she told me something that I did not know. Did I say her name? Nancy Gibbs? I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, so Nancy Gibbs. She was a very, she was a lovely lady. Uh, she who was married at Chautauqua. Um, and it's funny, she was telling me how when she got married there years ago, um, the place was still dry, so they had to have a speakeasy um, because all these journalists were there and journalists, most journalists are not going to go to a dry wedding. And it's funny, so like at the opening, uh, my opening sort of joke, um, which is also a true story, um, you know, I would say, how grateful I am to be here. This is wonderful. Thank you very much. Blah, 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 blah. This whole place reminds me of some, uh, one of the most important pieces of advice William F. Buckley ever gave me. And, um, and I said, always travel with your own alcohol, um, which is advice Bill Buckley gave. Um, anyway, she told me something I did not know. There is this, let me see if I can find it. Um, where is it? Hold on one second. Uh, hold on. You can clean up some of this, uh, dead air.
Okay, yeah, so there is this thing called the Polarization Lab. Um, and uh, it's, at, it's run out of Duke University. And I mean, I guess I'd heard of it, but like if you had told me the Polarization Lab is at Stanford or at Dartmouth or whatever, I would have believed you. I, just, I didn't know anything about it. Um, and one of the things they do is this, uh, bi is they have this like, um, uh, bipartisanship leadership board that, cause they're, they're measuring polarization in all sorts of places, but particularly in social media. And apparently I'm ranked number two on this, on uh, social media, on, on their index. Here's what it, it, here's how they describe it. We identified more than 10,000 high profile liberals and conservatives in the United States using a machine learning algorithm that searches for patterns in, in the people that American elected officials follow. You can learn more about this technique by reading this article. Sorry. We searched for the names of each of these people in hundreds of thousands of tweets that were liked by a large group of Democrats and Republicans on Twitter who we've surveyed. And, and then it goes on to explain all this stuff. Basically what this does is it looks at who on Twitter is read and to some limited extent endorsed or liked by both liberals and conservatives. Because basically there are two conversations going on on Twitter, at least in terms of politics, and the, the right and left really don't talk to each other, right? And apparently, um, I rank number two on this. When she had looked at it, because apparently they keep updating it, I ranked number two behind Carlos Lozada, a former remnant guest, who's the Washington Post book critic. And, um, but I have, uh, you know, like eight, nine times as many followers as, as he does. And of pretty much anybody else in the top 10, except for uh, Hoda Kotib, whatever the lady from the Today Show. Um, anyway, who's, who's ranked, what I'm looking at right now, at number eight. Anyway, uh, looking at it, Today, because apparently they keep updating it, there are four people tied at one. I still have more followers than all of them combined. Um, and then I'm alone at number two. And then John Avalon uh, is number three. Jim Cramer is four. Ari Shapiro is, is five and so on. Anyway, I think this is, on the one hand, kind of meaningless and silly. On the other hand, it's kind of interesting and it's interesting in part because I would have expected, you know, David French or, um, I don't know, even Liz Cheney. I mean, there are lots of people I would have expected to be higher on this list than I am. And so maybe there's some filter like, like Bill Crystal, and maybe, maybe I have more politicians following me for whatever reason, which is again, kind of interesting. Um, but I am utterly and completely convinced, you know, look, I'm sure there are a bunch of reasons for it. Um, uh, you know, just my general wit and charm, obviously. Um, also I tend to be 
I, I, I tweet about a bunch of conservative things, but I'm also critical of Trump and you can see how that would cross different, um, channels. But, uh, I'm convinced that the main driver of this is that I tweet about my dogs all the time. Um, and that generates, uh, likes from across the ideological spectrum because dogs are not on the ideological spectrum. Um, and I think that's one of these things that it's funny. So I had talked to Russ Roberts about dogs and before we started and he was telling me how he doesn't, he's never really you know, been a big dog guy, but I hope I'm not speaking out of school, um, too much. Uh, but he said my tweets and a few other people along the same lines have made him at least appreciate why some people are dog people. And we talked about how, you know, like that sort of feeling about Jew, about, about dogs is a very Jewish thing. Um, for at least a lot of Jews who come from a very urban tradition going way back. And, um, uh, like our basset hound and, oh no, I, I should say our schnauzer growing up was the first dog my dad had ever had first pet he'd ever had, I think. Uh, no, we, anyway, it doesn't matter. But, um, uh, and anyway, I think that like, you know, and I've made this point a bunch of times. I'm not going to dwell on it again, but you know, dogs are apolitical. I, I like tweeting the dog stuff. I don't really care that it annoys people. It is amazing how it bothers some people or how people use them. The dog tweets to say vicious and nasty things to me or really dumb pro Trump stuff and whatever. And I just, the exhaustion, the, 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 the sort of moral and, and imaginative exhaustion that comes from responding to a picture, to a video of a spaniel fetching a ball in water with, you know, you know, why aren't you doing more to save America and blah, 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 or, you know, or much worse stuff. Um, it's just sort of, so just exasperating and stupid to me. Um, but for most people, and, you know, dogs are this, this, um, they're sort of like, you know, the Chautauquas of our lives. They are these, these little, um, apolitical zones of, of joy. And the reason why I wanted to talk about dogs with Russ was that, um, you know, his whole thing is how, you know, he's, he's basically engaged in these arguments with economists and economic thinking. And I think it's partly because, you know, he's an economist. And so he's rediscovering all these other facets to life that aren't captured by economics, but are pretty well established by other modes of thinking and philosophy and, and theory and, and life. And, um, dogs are like far more than kids. Um, just economic folly, right? I mean, like even me, who's like publicizing my dogs and getting content out of my dogs and all that kind of stuff. I've never been able to monetize my dogs and, you know, 99.9999999999% of people don't get economic value out of their dogs. Yeah. You know, some guard dogs, some, some cattle dogs, whatever, but most people, dogs are just a loss center and that's fine because, um, we like the person our dogs think we are. And, um, 
Um, and we like being that person for them. And there's a lot of non-economic value in that. Um, all right. So anyway, I guess I should do some rank punditry. I have no idea. How long have I gone on here? Oh, gosh. Wow. I've been rambling. I apologize. So I haven't talked at all about the Liz Cheney stuff, really. I mean, I guess I did on the um, Dispatch podcast. Um, I listened to a lot of podcasts on the drive to and from Chautauqua. And also my wife had to go home for some business stuff. My daughter had to go home for some stuff. So I've been, you know, and my sister-in-law and her kids have been here. One of my sisters-in-law and her kids have been here. Um, so I've been doing a little stuff with them, but basically I've been on my own out here for a little bit. And, um, so I've been listening to a lot of other podcasts as well, just hanging out with the dogs. Anyway, um, if I had been doing this podcast a couple of days ago, I probably would have been much rantier and angrier about the Mar-a-Lago raid stuff, the, the Trump stuff, the Liz Cheney stuff. Um, but I'm trying to have more of a spirit of gratitude <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and I've had time to sort of process some of my outrage. But um, I got to say, all the people trying to make it sound like Liz Cheney isn't persona non grata in the Republican Party because of her Trump stuff are just lying to you or to themselves or to both of you, um, because it's just obviously so. And I might write about this. I don't know. But the, the, the thought experiment I want you to have isn't the one that Cheney keeps talking about, which is. If she had just stayed silent and been a loyal Republican, she could have been um, reelected by a wide margin like she was the last time she ran. Um, I think that's true. Um, but that's not, uh, that's not the sort of thought experiment that I want you to think about. Um, the thing that's sort of left out is that, you know, and I listened to the NR podcast about all of this, you know, and Rich uses this phrase about, they had a discussion about who models the right approach to this in the GOP, about how to deal with the Trump problem. And, you know, and he uses this phrase about um, how Mitch McConnell sort of dances or dodges through the raindrops, doing as little as he, as possi as he possibly can not to, um, to avoid a, a antagonizing the Trumpian base while at the same time making it clear that he thinks so, you know, a lot of the excesses are not helpful, right? And like, there's talk about whether Glenn Youngkin's approach is better. Hold on, I got to bring these dogs back in. Good girls. Good girls. Lie down. Lie down. Lie down. No schnozzling. Stop it. Lie down. Um, you know, does Glenn Dunk, Glenn Youngkin do it the right way? Yada, yada, yada. You know, uh, and, you know, sure, Liz Cheney is principled, but she's too strident and she's too helpful to the Democrats. And, you know, all, and I, I get it. I get all the debates. Um, and the thing that, so I got, I got really, I want to be fair because I, I like Xan DeSantis and I am, um, and in some ways I am, just picking on her because she was pithy about a sentiment that is widespread out there. If you listen to, you know, the conversations on cable shows or read Twitter, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a 
fairly representative view of a lot of people. And, and Zan had said something along the lines of, look, I don't want, I don't, I don't want politicians to compromise their principles. I don't want Republicans to compromise their principles, but you have to be sort of pragmatic about how you do politics, something along those lines. Right. But the phrase that stuck out to me was, I don't want politicians. I don't want, I think it was politicians, but might've been Republicans to compromise their principles. And the thing that vexed me about this, and I'm, I'm much calmer now, is treating Trump like a normal politician compromises conservative principles. Pretending that January 6th wasn't something that we should all be outraged about compromises conservative principles. But forget the political principles in the sort of philosophical principles. I mean, there, there's some fundamental principles. Conservatives, before we talk about, you know, left wing and right wing and, and, and big government and small government, conservatives, particularly social conservatives who think character is supposed to matter, um, you know, to tolerate lies and, crude, and, and cruelty and bullying and, and, and um, unmanly behavior these are all compromises of conservative principles. I would argue that the way we make space on the right, or I shouldn't say we, the way that people on the right make space for Donald Trump, and I'm not talking about the throne-sniffing suck-ups, you know, I'm not talking about the Seb Gorkas. I'm talking about, like, the good, decent conservatives who are, you know, the Mitch McConnells, um, the people who are exasperated by Trump, but who... Um, also have to feel like they have to be pragmatic. They, the principles they've been compromising for the last five years are more important and more profound than like the principle of low taxes or high taxes. They're more fundamental to the culture and to the way we raise our kids than the, you know, the principle of, um, whether or not the IRS should do more audits or fewer audits. Um, uh, the tolerance, never mind giving space and finding common cause with the people who celebrate, you know, that Ed Klingenstein guy who's the chairman of the Claremont Institute, who literally argues that Trump's policies are secondary and that his chief virtues are the man is the manly man, his words, the manly man himself, right? The, the lies and the crudity and the bullying and the, the bigotries, small and large, that those are what make Donald Trump great. That is a much bigger violation of Buckleyite conservative principles than, you know, strong defense, weak defense, strong on China or any of those kinds of things. I'm not saying that those things don't matter, but there are, there's lots of room for serious debate and disagreement about what the right marginal tax rates should be that don't touch conservative principles. But the stuff that Trump daily displays, the way he behaves, the behavior he encourages, and the people that he brings into the tent of the supposedly big tent of conservatism or of the Republican Party, those things violate principles far more profoundly than anything Liz Cheney has done. What are, what are the principles that Liz Cheney has violated? Show me one. Uh, 
you know, I, I gather that party loyalty, I guess, is a conservative principle, but it's not a very high one. And if you think it is, you should probably be reading up, you know, the biographies of like people like William F. Buckley. Um, it's certainly not higher than as a conservative principle than um, the idea of, of being faithful to your wife, um, of not trying to unleash a mob on uh, Congress, of not fomenting or turning a blind eye or rationalizing violence or any of, you know, or, or celebrating strongmen. Um, Liz Cheney hasn't violated any of those kinds of principles. But anyway, here's the thought experiment that I want to do, because I can tell I'm going to get too worked up if I don't move on. Um, so people forget Liz Cheney behaved like Mitch McConnell. And I've defended Mitch McConnell. I wrote, I don't know, a year ago, year and a half ago, about how Mitch McConnell is one of the last grown-ups. Doesn't mean I agree with him on everything, but I think he's he's a grown-up. I didn't like, you know, his Clintonite response to impeachment. You know, remember Clinton famously said that he um, agreed with the people in favor of the first Iraq war, but would have voted with the people who were against it. And sort of like, I, you know, I smoked pot, but I didn't inhale. McConnell was like, McConnell's approach was Trump deserved to be impeached and removed from office, but I'm voting against impeachment. And it was too clever by half. Um, disagree with him about that. Disagree with him about a bunch of things. But I also think Mitch McConnell is a serious person and he's a grown up and that's fine. And he was trying to be the leader of his party. And that requires uh, making sacrifices. Paul Ryan, I consider a friend. He made similar compromises. I didn't agree with all of them. But he was trying to do what was best for the best parts of the GOP by, you know, figuring out where to bend and where to break and all that. I get all those arguments. That's what Liz Cheney did. That's she voted. I don't know. The number you keep hearing is 93% of the time with Donald Trump. I was actually, you know, it was, it was an off the record AI thing, but I was on a panel with Liz and we got into a little um, argument um, where she took a much sort of Republicans have to stick together and work with Trump kind of position than what I was talking about or favoring. But then again, she was in Republican leadership and she was trying to do right by her party. And so she danced through the raindrops for four years of the Trump presidency. And then January 6th happens. And at a time when sort of every single halfway sane Republican and conservatives was condemning January 6th, was condemning Trump for his role in January 6th, whether it technically met the, the definition of incitement and all that as a side issue, right? He was morally complicit in what happened in Jan in, on January 6th to one degree or another, um, that the whole thing was obscene, that his lying about the election being stolen was obscene. Everybody agreed with that. Liz Cheney sounded no different than essentially Kevin McCarthy or Mitch McConnell or any of those guys. The only difference is that she actually meant it. Or that she was, she meant it so much that she was willing to stick by it. And so, like, if I had said, this is the thought experiment. If I had said to you, um, in 2019, 
okay, we know what the Trump presidency has been like. We got one more year of it. Then there's the election. And here's what's going to happen. Trump is going to lie that the election was stolen. He's going to declare victory in election night, even though he lost, which is something, if you recall, Steve Bannon um, absolutely predicted as if he had had these conversations in October before the election. This was a plan. This is the plan all along. So, but Trump is going to lie, declare victory, um, uh, make all sorts of bogus claims and have weird unconstitutional schemes, John Eastman stuff, predict all of that stuff. And then you say, um, and then what's going to happen is Trump is going to invite and his, his lieutenants are going to invite proud boys, oath keepers, all sorts of, you know, um, sketchy people to intermingle alongside a whole bunch of just sort of -of run-of-the-mill MAGA, rank-and-file Republican people. And he is going to use that mob to intimidate Congress out of certifying the electoral votes. And then whether you, you know, whether he wanted the mob to attack or you can give whatever version that as long as it sticks to the facts you want, that he did nothing as this foreseeable violence happened, or he did nothing because he wanted and had intended for the foreseeable violence to happen. Either scenario you want is fine for me for these purposes. And then you just ask, would that be the last straw for you with Trump? Would you just be like, enough is enough? Would you give the speech that Lindsey Graham eventually, you know, that gave that night about how this is where I get off the train? And my hunch is, is that 95% of the reasonable conservative critics of Liz Cheney would say absolutely. And, and if I had said, okay, well, what's going to, what's going to happen is the party is going to rally around Trump. Fox News is going to rally around Trump. And they're going to turn Liz Cheney into the villain, and um, and you're going to go along with it. You're going to give me this, on the one hand this, on the other hand that, and this is what parties are for, and that's what parties are for, and you're going to go along with it, and you're going to say she should have just played ball. Even though she played ball for over four years, and the last straw for her was when this lame duck, outgoing, defeated president did this heinous thing and she, like everybody else, condemned it, but she didn't have an asterisk after her condemnation saying, unless the political winds blow back the other way again. And if I accused so many of my friends that that's how they would end up going too, they'd be understandably outraged and offended. So yeah, I get this was bad politics for Liz Cheney. I get the argument. I think it probably was bad politics for Liz Cheney. I don't give a rat's ass that it was bad politics for Liz Cheney. Um, that's not the point. This is this is one of the most annoying things about punditry is the way people, it's, it's a lot like the legal punditry stuff where people, um, they, 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 load in all of these base assumptions about the rules of the game or the scoring of the game. And it gives them sort of permission to provide explanations as if they're excuses. 
Um, and I'll give you an example of this since we're, we're doing this stuff. Um, so I keep hearing all these explanations about why Trump had this classified stuff and they, you know, and they keep changing and all that kind of stuff. And I, and this is another thought experiment. Maybe I'll write about this too. I want to ask these people, okay, you know, like, all right. So like one, one theory I keep hearing is that, um, they were just in a rush and they threw a bunch of stuff in boxes and, um, they didn't really pay much attention to what it was. Okay. That's one theory. Another theory is, uh, this was put out by the Trump people, um, that, he liked to work in the residence, so he had a standing rule that anything he took out of the Oval Office was automatically declassified. And people think these are defenses. Um, and they are defenses in the context of garbage debates on cable news channels or on Twitter. But the thought experiment is, what if people actually believed this was true, that these are the actual defenses, right? Not the talking points, not the things that get you out of an interview, but like this is actually was the rule. So we're, so you're telling me that some of the most classified material in America, right, uh, having to do with assessments of nuclear powers or our own nuclear capabilities, that all of a sudden that stuff is declassified declassified because Trump wants to work in his bed or Trump wants to work with the TV on at, you know, his private desk. Really? That is the standard by which the commander in chief decides whether or not some of our most important nuclear uh, secret materials are no longer classified is because of the, he wants to be able to eat a pint of Rocky road while, while, while reading this stuff in his bedroom. Really? Not like, some sort of strategic assessment about, you know, the importance of the information. And first of all, do you actually believe that he was reading these things in his room? I mean, the whole reason why they basically had to do briefings with, 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 with hand puppets and, um, and, and, and index cards is because he didn't have the attention span, but you're saying, Oh, I want to spend more time on this document in my room. You actually believe that? I mean, but like, that would be great if that were true. But I don't think any, any serious student of Trump thinks that that stuff is true. But this idea that instead of a five-point test about the relevance or whether it's going to compromise sources and methods um, or reveal strategic assets that we want to keep secret, the standard for declassification of some of our most sensitive stuff is Donald Trump's you know, desire to read it in his pajamas. That if that were true, that would make him unfit to be president. And people trot these things out as if these are defenses. They're not defenses. They're like the best. Like when when your best case, even though it's a lie, your best case claims for why you did something are actually damning. Um, that's pretty bad, and that's what goes on all the time with this stuff is people make these claims that um, they think absolve Trump when all they do is undermine, is, is underscore the point that the people who are trotting out this stuff just want to turn a blind eye to the fact that the guy is unfit to be president in the first place. I'm done with all that. Um, oh, we've gone over an hour. Okay, so a couple other things on the... Um, 
um, on their niche podcast, Advisory Opinions. You know, this is August Nerd Month. And David and Sarah, I have to admit, for the first time in a long while, they have ignited in me professional envy and jealousy of their boutique podcast. Um, they've had two episodes that, properly speaking, should be on The Remnant. They get a free pass in August because they don't want to do the love. You know, who wants to work hard? Um, but they, uh, um, they had two episodes. One was, um, with this guy from the history of English podcast. That was just fantastic. Really enjoyed that. Um, and learned a bunch of things that I did not know, um, which was really cool. And then, um, the other was, uh, this uh, ancient military historian. I shouldn't say he's ancient. He's a military historian of ancient military stuff who writes about who like does assessments of fictional battles. Um, you know, from Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, all that kind of stuff, uh, fictional battles, fictional, um, strategic wars, you know, thinking all that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's it's just nerd gold. I'm very jealous of it. Um, so I I just you know I want to give praise where it's due. You know, people think that I'm sometimes being uh, chintzy when I call it you know a boutique podcast or, or or a niche podcast and all that kind of stuff. And I just want to you know point out that every now and then they uh you know they you know. They bring game at, at, at remnant level performance levels. And I just, I'm impressed. Um, which reminds me, I, you know, things have been so busy and there's so much stuff going on and there's things like at some point I'm going to have to debrief all you guys on, but, um, you know, I've wanted for a long time, weird podcasts on here on the remnant. Um, I mean, we're always going to do a rank punditry. Um, it's part of the, the contract I have and we're always going to do that kind of stuff and current events and whatever. But, um, I want to do weirder podcasts. I really do. Um, and I don't mean weird for weirdness sake. I just have weird interests. Um, guy was supposed to find me a rat guy and he found one, but I guess the guy never, uh, never really responded. And what I mean by rat guys, I don't mean like a very large rat. Um, I mean, um, I'm kind of fascinated by, um, urban rodent policy issues. And I'm serious about this. And, um, ever since like my dad, when I was a little kid read that, um, and I think it turned out to be something like an urban myth. Um, I occasionally read up on urban rat issues. Um, but he had read somewhere that there's th there are three rats for every New Yorker. And my dad always used to joke about he wanted, he wanted to know where his three rats are. Um, anyway, I, I think about this stuff. Maybe it's because I watched the movie, you know, what was it, Ben, at too early an age. And I have mild phobias about rats. And um, But I want to get a guy, a really good rat guy, to talk about rats historically contemporaneously anything like that so if you know anybody who's a rat guy let me know um 
And I like to do other stuff like that. So if you have quirky, weird ideas for podcasts, it, you know, don't feel bad if I don't immediately embrace them because part of the point is they have to be things that I can get excited about. And you, just as I am very confident, there are many listeners right now who are like, why would I want to listen to a whole podcast about rats? Um, I might have a similar reaction to um, your suggestion of a whole podcast about uh, canning. Although canning is actually pretty interesting, but you get the point. Like people have quirky interests, but if if you have ideas, and particularly if you have ideas of people who would be good talkers on this stuff, you know, um, real experts who um, also sort of would would get the conversation that we like to have around here, please, you know, let me know. Um, we'll put the I can't I can't remember what our email address is. I think it's remnantpod at gmail but we'll put it in the show notes because i don't want to get it wrong um you can also you know hit me up at jonah at the dispatch is my email or guy.denton at aei.org and let him deal with this um but uh, you know going into next year i want to i want to i want to up the game here um and have more fun weird conversations with fun weird people and um I guess that's about it. Um, oh, nah, I'll save it for another time. But uh, um, um, and I think I'm here for one more week. Uh, we we got the place for all of August, um, but we also would probably want to drive home on a weekend. Um, so yeah, so I think I'm I'm definitely here for another week. Um, my wife and daughter come back tomorrow, which I'm very much looking forward to. The dogs are going to lose their minds. And um, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.